Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to Talking CFD with Robin Knowles. It's kind of like my show, but for CFD nerds, prepare to ignite. Happy New Year, CFD News. It's 2020, a new decade, in fact. Um, we're back to round off the current season of Talking CFD with the last trio of episodes. We've got a founder interview, an insights episode, and a final social. So let's get into that and kick off with our final founder interview. Um, in today's show, we're hovering at the intersection of CFD, AI, machine learning, generative design, rapid manufacture. So this could go in any number of directions. And they should all be pretty interesting because they're topics that we've not really dug into on this show before. Today, I'm joined by Levan Vervecken, one of the founders of Belgian CFD startup Diabatics. Welcome to the show, Levan. Hi, Robin. Thanks. Uh, nice to be on your show. Now, don't go into too much detail just yet. We don't want to peak too early, but was the intro about right? Are we kind of sat at the intersection of a number of technologies here, not just CFD? No, no, exactly. It's, it's very, it's correct to put it in that way. It's, it's really a combination of uh, a few domains in, in which we are active. So could you describe Diabatics just in maybe a couple of sentences for someone who's maybe not heard of you guys? So with Diabatics, we're an engineering company uh, from Belgium specialized in uh, advanced thermal design. And with advanced thermal design, I mean, we're trying to push the limits of uh, thermal design by making use of uh, CFD in combination with uh, AI, machine learning, and uh, in more general in, in uh, terms of generative design methods. Uh, that way we try to uh, design purely based on, on computational power or simulation power, try to design uh, more efficient heat sinks, uh, for instance, uh, in cooling components. So can we kind of paint a little bit of a picture of the kind of thing we're talking about? When you say heat sinks, I think the spiky aluminium hedgehog sat on top of a CPU. Um, and I guess they're in use across the board. And as, as somebody who's not kind of in that space, are we talking about that sort of thing or are we talking about a different, a different kind of configuration altogether? Yeah, no, exactly. That's a, a, one, one very good example uh, of components that we design. Uh, but can also be, instead of air cooling, it can also be with uh, with liquid cooling, uh, either water or some sort of oil. And that's something, for instance, you find a lot in uh, these days in electrical vehicles uh, that they have been that they are designing now. So for the cooling of batteries uh, or the power electronics or the electric motors. Okay, are, they, are these kind of? I guess they're they're fairly big items, are they? Uh, yeah, so the the smallest, uh, sorry, yeah, so the smallest things we we do are in the order of uh, computer chip size, so going from okay. a few millimeters um, to yeah. The biggest ones are coal plates uh, for for batteries uh, of of trucks. So then then we're really talking about uh, dimensions of several meters in size. Oh wow! Okay, cool. Yeah, literally cool. With the cold plates, for example, are we talking about? We're not talking about a spiky hedgehog type affair. We're talking about um, pathways milled into a plate. Is that the kind of thing? Yes, yes. So, in, in, uh, when, when we're talking about uh, cold plates and, and especially liquid cooled uh, cold plates, then uh, it's it's more like a shaped kind of cooling channels, uh, parallel channels, uh, things like that. So, it's nothing nothing too spiky then. Uh, but more in a more regular pattern, uh, or at least that's how they typically look. Because uh, in our case, and I uh, recommend to check our website, you will see that the, the patterns are by far uh, regular and uh, easy to predict. Yeah, I think we'll probably get 
come back round to that, and I'll definitely stick some links in the show notes for people to for people to check out. Because yeah, you kind of, and it's another one of these episodes. I keep doing them where you kind of need to see a little bit just to mm-hmm. get an idea of of what's going on. So, can you rewind a little bit? I don't know how far it would be to rewind, but can you give us an idea of of how the the business started, the kind of when, where, why, why now kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it actually started uh, a few years ago uh, when uh, me and my co-founder were finishing our PhDs. Uh, we were colleagues uh, from the University in Leuven in, in Belgium. And uh, we both had uh, just uh, the urge to start our own company. Uh, we did not really know what we would be doing at that time. Uh, the only thing we knew was uh, what we learned from university uh, being I had the expertise in, in uh, running simulations efficiently and Jor is a co-founder, uh, did uh, a PhD on thermal modeling. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, so so basically we, after the P- at the end of the PhD, we said, okay, let's start um, just a consultancy firm um, and and rent ourselves out to, to, to companies and, and basically sell our expertise in, in, in thermal simulations and, so, uh, and thermal modeling. And it's uh, so. So initially, we were uh, simple consultants uh, for at least for the first few months. Uh, but we quickly learned uh, while working with our customers that uh, the the true problem that were at, at, at the core of thermal design was not really um, trying to get something cooled down, but was basically that the initial step when the design was made uh, was made by a human and based on his experience and by rules of thumb, uh, which whether or not were correct, uh, was, was very difficult to, to say at the time. Um, but we saw that, that there was a human at the first step, basically determining what the, what the performance would be of, of, uh, of the component. And we saw a very big opportunity there to uh, make use of that, that, uh, that opportunity to, to get uh, to a better technology, uh, to a technology that would help to make uh, better thermal designs. Yeah, it makes sense. So people were kind of people that kind of traditionally designing things that they already know that just about work or kind of will do the job. There's kind of no real innovation in that space. Exactly. So maybe I'll put it this way. So what we what we saw when we just started with the with diabetics is that the way that people designed cooling components was the same way as how they did it 50 years ago. They started from their experience. They, or, or by copy-pasting existing yes. designs, they modified maybe a few things and they tested it in their labs or they made a pro- physical prototype. They measured it and saw, does it work or not? And if it didn't work, they would redo it. And the moment that we were involved with, uh, with diabetics at that time was uh, when they observed it doesn't work. So after uh, uh, many design cycles and expensive prototyping work. And that was actually for us a trigger to start developing our own technology to see, can we move ourselves, uh, not at the point where a problem uh, occurred, but can we shift to a service provider all the way at the beginning of the design process so that the uh, the chances for for, um, for bad thermal designs would, would be reduced and, and uh, the chances that they would have run into thermal problems or thermal issues um, during the prototyping or even afterwards would be much, much reduced. And that was actually the trigger 
for the developments of, of our own technology that resulted in, in what diabetics is today. Before leaving this too far behind, I just wanted to, the, the PhD to business pathway is, or, or kind of a, um, any degree, but kind of PhD particular to business pathway is kind of one that seems quite interesting to, to the audience. And is, is that something that was is particularly supported from from your university from Leuven, or um, was it something you just got you guys had a kind of entrepreneurial itch to scratch and you went and did it anyway? Well, I think it is. Uh, it was a bit of the combination. Uh, the the itch was for sure there. So the the, the wanting to start something and and that's at least uh, the the biggest thing you need uh, the motivation because it's not yeah, easy. Sure. So yeah, you will run into difficult moments and, and difficult periods. Um, but we were helped indeed by the university. So they have a, a few initiatives at the University of Leuven um, in helping PSE students starting their own business. And one of them, for instance, was uh, simply offering office office space to us. So the first year of diabetics, we were simply in an office owned by the university, but with a decent meeting room where we could receive people uh, with decent uh, internet uh, connection things uh, a connection to supercomputers, etc. So there was quite some infrastructure uh, that we could make use of. Uh, so we didn't have to start in a garage box, you know. <laughs> so uh, that, you had some heated in a coffee machine. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so coming back around to how you guys work nowadays, are you are you selling code or you said you started as a consultancy? How how does a typical project work for you guys now? Um, a typical project for us now is basically um, a customer sends us uh, a technical drawing of a, of a component or a part of a car or a battery pack or and you would indicate, okay, within this space, uh, I have the room to place cooling channels or pin-fin kind of structures uh, or something like that. And uh, it needs to be manufactured using this or this or this technology. It can be 3D printing, die costing, CNC milling. Uh, things like that, and uh, they ask. And on top of that, they say, "Okay, we need to have the component or the batteries, or um, we need to have it have them as cold as possible, or the thermal expansion needs to be minimal." So they explain what they want to achieve with their cooling component, and that's about it. So that's the input we get from the customer. We feed it into our in, in our software. Um, it uh, we, we press uh, press press play button. And uh, after a few days of running on uh, quite a few big uh, supercomputers, um, we get them uh, design out of the, the system. And that's something we, we send back to our customer. So it's uh, not exactly, uh, it's not consultancy in the true definition in the sense that we are not on site with the customer, for instance. It's not, uh, we're not paid by the hour, uh, but we sell designs in, in the end. So from that point of view, we're like in... Uh, I shall put it, uh, a, a digital uh, product uh, sellers. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's not quite a code vendor. It's not quite um, consultancy bush, button pushing. It's, uh, yeah, a, a sort of a, a white space in between. Yes, yes, exactly. I don't want you to name names, obviously, but kind of what sort of companies is, is this for? I mean, are you sort of, in fact, forget the companies because we've, we've spoken about some of the industries, but are you... Are you dealing with people who are, have an appreciation of CFD? Perhaps they're a CFD expert already and they've already got a tool that they use to design heat sinks and it's not quite cutting the mustard. It's not doing the job properly um, and you guys can do a better job than that. Or 
are they just kind of outsourcing the whole CFD aspect of it and the design to you and they 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 have less of an appreciation of what's going on they just know that what you said back is going to work no no it's indeed uh, most of the time we're working with uh, experts uh, so okay. on the other side so uh, a typical customer for us just to give you some idea as as by uh, as easily more than 10,000 employees I think on average, they're between 50 and 100,000 employees. Wow. So you can imagine that typically with those those kind of companies, they've got experts. We'll have a few experts uh, running around there. And uh, and yeah, the, the, the reason that they approach us or that we approach them and start collaborating is exactly uh, what you say. So they, they experience a limit and they experience that they cannot solve it uh, or they cannot cross that limit uh, on based on the tools that they have available today. So they, they feel the need of taking a next step or, or outsourcing it to us, asking us for input, uh, new ideas on uh, how to improve their term performance of their components. And that's not a, we're not talking about like that they've hit a compute limit. They don't have enough computers to be able to do this. This is a kind of um, a technical limit. They don't have the tool set. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's still, uh, you have to keep in mind. The, the, the main difference that we offer with our technology is that when we make a thermal design, we can start from scratch. And that's a huge difference compared to a regular optimization tool where you would start from, uh, if you just take an, an serpentine kind of cooling channel, in the end, if you start optimizing that, you will still have a serpentine looking cooling channel, maybe with a, a few more turns or a little bit smaller channels or, or whatever. Uh, but the, the general shape will be the same as the one that you start from. In our case, we can start from a clean sheet. We, we don't have to start from an initial guess. And that just opens a lot of opportunity to, to yeah, get to a better design. So as I say, I'm going to add some links to the, the show notes because I think mm -hmm. you've got some videos that explain this sort of thing. But essentially, are we talking about where we've got an inlet, we've got an outlet, we've got an, an area that's kind of a void where we can where we can play and you're going to introduce blockage and, and, and surfaces into there for heat transfer. But where they go and what shape they take is undefined when you start the simulation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, um, and on top of of just indicating where um, where where material can be can be added, um, we also set some additional constraints on if if a channel is formed, for instance, um, that it needs to have a minimal size because right? from an effecting point of view, it might be just an essential requirement. I wanted to get onto that. We mentioned a lot of kind of buzzwords if you like so we're talking ai we're talking machine learning generative design and, and people quite often have an idea of what you mean by those terms without you having to explain them but unfortunately all of those terms mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people mm -hmm. so yeah for example when i say if somebody says generative design to me, I think of one of these examples of you see of a relatively simple kind of structural bracket, maybe like a U bracket or something like that, that's been morphed with the load pathways to resemble something mm -hmm. looking like a tree um, yeah. that from a, a structural point of view does the job, but is an order of magnitude more difficult to make. If, unless you've got the highest end um, additive manufacturing machines, you're not going to be able to make it if you're the kind of company that's making um, U-brackets out of out of plate, for example. So I think one of the things you guys major on is the fact that 
your generative designs are easily manufacturable or even just manufacturable if you like um is that is that something that's proved to be a problem or something that's super important uh well it is for sure has proven to be super important because uh, you can design many things uh, and and certainly when you have a big powerful computer uh, at your disposal but uh, what we see is if you don't focus on the manufacturing point of view if you don't give it sufficient attention it will be useless work because uh, in the end you would say, okay, this looks nice, but we cannot do anything with it. And I think one of the, the major contributions that we have, have uh, realized with diabetics is um, taking the generative design to a much broader broader scope from manufacturability point of view. Because it's true, especially with structural engineering, um, you you. Easy, I, you very often end up with, with 3D printing, or at least that's the, the, the areas where generative design and structural engineering is, is these days used is in combination with 3D printing. Yeah. And for us, uh, 3D printing is only a very, very small part of our business. Uh, we're much more uh, doing much more work in, in frame of machining and uh, sheet metal forming, uh, I like mass manufacturing. Uh, I also go into watch mass manufacturing techniques uh, rather than, than 3D printing. So being able to kind of mill this out on a CNC machine as opposed to having to grow it from a, a high-end additive manufacturing tool. Yeah, exactly. And um, so and, and, and it, it requires uh, it required quite some effort, and and the effort is still ongoing. So we're certainly uh, we're lost to claim that we have solved all of the issues. Uh, but it, uh, I'm very proud to say that we solved uh, at least the, the essential uh, issues that need to be solved to make this possible. So when we looked at, at where we were uh, three, four years ago, it took us a year and a half before we, we could design our, our first uh, heat sink, or at least to design the first uh, reasonable heat sink. Because uh, if you have to pre- 3D print, uh, an almost solid aluminum block with a few channels in there. It's yeah, it's it's extremely expensive to do so, um, and no one will buy it. So um, that was uh, at least that was that's certainly in the beginning a very big challenge. Um, in hindsight, it sounds completely obvious that you would have that kind of focus. But is that something that evolved? Did that come about with contact with customers, or um, was it something that you always had in mind right from the beginning? No, no, that's uh, I, at the very beginning we were very naive in that. So <laughs> we we learned it uh, by doing it with uh, with, with I, we we learned by talking with customers with uh, other um, basically also companies that that produce the components. And so in the first years, uh, I think every uh, every week I was talking with with uh, either at, at least a few customers or at least a few companies that produced heat sinks to learn about how they do it today, what the limitations are they experience, and, and what the challenges are that they see. And basically what we what we heard, heard from, from the, the customer point of view, they said, yeah, we are limited in what we can design. And from a manufacturing point of view, we uh, often heard, yeah, we can produce much more than what people design for. So uh, we try to, to make the bridge and saw then that it also becomes possible if you really push the limits of what you can, or try to find the limits of what you can produce on the CNC mill, for instance, or uh, with, with sheet metal plates, that also in that context for, for 
heat sinks, you can gain 15 to 20% in performance well, without having to switch to more, more expensive, to different manuf- yeah, more expensive manufacturing techniques. So there was a huge opportunity there, a big, big gap there uh, already in the beginning of, uh, that was very, very fast, uh, became clear to us. Do you think it's tempting when you start to think that because you're doing something innovative that kind of maybe you know better than the market and to kind of keep it to yourselves, but it sounds like you guys went out and spoke to a lot of people and, and kind of learned what the real problems were. Is that is that an essential part of starting up a company these days? Yeah, yeah, that was actually a, a hint that we got from the university because they, they also had a lot of experience with yeah, basically putting a new technology in a market and a state-of-the-art technology that, that no one else uh, controlled yet or, or uh, had experience with yet. Yeah. And they basically said, talk with as many people as you can and uh, explain them what you are willing to do or what you want to do and see what they respond or, or, or listen to, to their feedback. Um, the chances that someone copies it are so, so, so small. Yeah. The, the risk is is just uh, I it's it's worth to take the risk, um, especially when you when you're dealing with with high tech uh, applications. Minimize the risk of turning up with something that nobody's interested in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to start developing and and putting your your savings uh, in, in in something that you don't know that that will be used afterwards, or at least that there's a demand uh, for. We, we, at that moment, we didn't know where we, whether we were able to be, uh, whether we would be able to sell it. Uh, but at least we knew that we were solving an issue. Uh, we saw it from the consultancy point of view, um, but we also saw it uh, I, from from different angles. We we kept on getting the same the confirm. Uh, we kept on getting the confirmation. Like, here, there is an opportunity. Here, there is still a gap that uh, that 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 we might be able to fill. We also mentioned a kind of another loaded term fairly early on, and that was uh, AI and artificial intelligence. What kind of at a high level? What do you guys mean by AI in this context? Yeah, if you if you ask me what what AI is or or what it does, um, in the end, if if you develop a software or a tool for, to be used in a computer to replace not only to replace the task of a human or to, to do the job of a human, in our case, to do a part of the job of a terminal engineer, but you build it in such a way that it can not only do the job, but do the job much better. In the end, you have built a system that can uh, yeah, even, even make decisions on how a component or how a, a yeah, structural component or thermal component, in our case, should, should look like without any human interference. And in, in our case, in, in layman terms, what we do is we just describe a problem or cooling problem to our computer. We press a start button and it's a computer that gives us a solution. For me, that, that falls fully under the category of AI, regardless of the algorithms that we use, etc. Not, the, the, not the, the mathematical and the, the technology that's behind it. Um, but just from a high level, it can perfectly see that that it's this has uh, an, an artificial intelligence component to it because it does the job of a human and it does it better and faster i think probably more people and certainly not everybody but i think more people would probably be familiar with a kind of traditional optimization loop so maybe uh, 
design of experiments where we we <laughs> run a few runs we do um an optimization based on some performance function and then we choose maybe some new points to uh, to run and refine that and try and get to a kind of optimum point mm-hmm. how how does what you guys do differ from from that is it just that having fed it the start point it makes the decisions rather than me making the decisions. So just to be clear, also in our system, optimization is involved. And so we need something to direct the, the AI part. And so and, and uh, makes only sense to, to assign an optimization uh, target to it. But the, the main difference is with the regular optimization tool or the design of experiments. Um, typically, you start from a design that you know. In our case, when we start uh, a design process, we start from scratch, and it's actually our system that will first simulate the behavior of the component without any shapes uh, in in place in there. Based on the information it gets from that first uh, simulation, it will start to think, okay, what if I place a material there? Yeah, and starts to learn how the system behaves when material is placed at certain locations or removed again and making the combination. So it's certainly not uh, not not a random process because that would m- make it impossible to do. Yeah. I guess if if, if it's a more a design of experiments or a Monte Carlo kind of approach uh, that we would use, you would need probably yeah tens of thousands of evaluations before you see a trend uh, in in uh, in in the designs. In our case, we typically be, are, are able to solve it with a few hundred iterations. And that's because of the learning part that that's behind it. And is that learning sort of self-contained within a given project or does it does it um, apply across a, a field? So if you're doing a cold plate for one uh, application, does some of that learning from another cold plate project play into the, the across the the gap we deliberately chose it to focus on on uh project per project yeah so it's kind of siloed yeah yeah exactly because um the one thing you want to avoid at least what what we wanted to avoid because uh, also for us the, the technology was new and yeah. you have to put it in uh, so we didn't know what to expect either and um we deliberately chosen to focus on project per project basis and not to uh, transfer what what the system has learned to other projects, um, just to be able to start from a clean sheet every yes. time again. And um, well, but but um, much of our R and D at the moment is is focused on how can we improve our algorithms that uh, there is some uh, learning involved over the different project, but that the learning is not not necessarily about how to uh, transfer certain patterns or something like that that we see. But uh, it's more into how can we speed up the system to get to a similar result or to the same performance or, or something like that uh, with less iterations, uh, for instance. Instead of having to run for a few days, can we reduce it to a few hours? Do you see an application for AI within CFD that would actually replace the simulation as opposed to making decisions about the results of a simulation, if that makes sense? The, the most expensive part for us uh, during... I, uh, with the things that we do is computational power. So, uh, and most of it, I, you know, not, not most of it, but nearly all of it goes into running CFD simulations. And, and we still run them on the traditional way in yeah. the sense of uh, solving uh, a matrix uh, time after time after time uh, yeah. until you reach a convergence. And, and um, 
okay, you try to optimize it that if you uh, run the uh, for for a few hundred iterations that at least some data is transferred between the, the iterations so that the simulation time is reduced but it still remains a very uh, computationally very heavy task to do and uh, any means that that we can use to to speed up the process uh, are things that we uh, will seriously consider so it sounds like you're uh, you're still rapidly developing the tools uh yes so <laughs> yeah so so r and d it, it's uh you have companies that say yeah ten percent of our activities is r and d i think we're closer to to sixty or seventy percent oh wow the the world simply evolves at a very very high uh high pace and where the things that we were doing uh, a few years ago or with the heat sinks uh that was enough to to get the attention of, of our customers then um but we see now that the the bar is is uh, increasing and so where um, a few years ago we could simply say yeah, we design uh, we design optimal cold plates uh, but now we get also questions towards uh, okay if you have um, also a system with a fan can you make the fan um, uh, more silent or can you uh-huh. um, combine the structural with the thermal part or so the, the customers come with their uh, every I, Time after time, with with more and more challenging uh, questions, and we it's in our DNA, it's in the DNA of of, uh, of diabetics to to try to answer them as fast as we can, and that just means very that we have to focus on R and D a lot. Is it sometimes difficult to kind of keep the focus to not be kind of do too distracted into a slightly adjacent area or something? Um, at that, uh, we we uh, got fairly good at that <laughs> to keep yeah. the focus, uh, but also there there was a learning curve involved. <laughs> so yeah, that that you know that that's uh, one of the things if you're if you're young and, and have a young company. Uh, the average age of, of diabetics uh, it, it's 27 and so many of the people working here are just left school and so yeah, it, it, the great thing about it is that you're working with a highly motivated team uh, which is eager to solve any question that a customer has uh, but at the risk of force that you sometimes uh, lose yourself in trying to find the, the most optimal answer or the best answer possible um, regardless of the time it, it will take you, and and that was uh, that's at least something that we have learned in the past that that in not all situations that is uh, recommended to do. <laughs> <laughs> How big is the team? I should have asked you earlier. Uh, we're about ten people now. Uh, all right, cool. Ten uh, people uh, full time uh, involved, and then uh, several part times. Um, we also have. Uh, a few people from the university, uh, both students as uh, intern, uh, interns, uh, students, master thesis students, uh, a few PhDs that are involved. So uh, the team itself, let's say on on a weekly basis, we're closest closer between fifteen to twenty people involved than the the ten that are involved full time. And from what you were just saying about the R and D, is that does that kind of reflect the split of what people are doing as well? Most people are, are pushing on with R and D, or is there, is there a lot of customer support? Uh, well, it's fifty-fifty, uh, okay, uh, more or less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and the the link with the customer is just very very important. But even working with customer is, um, even our, our shall put it, our, our sales engineers are partly doing R&D together with, the, together with the customer and also providing the feedback to the R&D team, uh, saying, hey, 
this is a feature that's come up, uh, that that will come up in the future. Can we support it uh, or not? Um, and and so the uh, everyone has, has uh, at least the, the technical people here. Uh, all of them are to a certain extent involved in, in the development of, of the technology and, and are doing an R&D effect. It's, I've been involved in companies of that size. It's kind of a nice size to be at. Sort of everybody, you've still got a handle on what everybody's doing and, and being able to uh, to cross the divides and things like that. It's quite nice. Um, I think I know some of the answer to this one, but I'd be keen to know what you think your kind of unique point of difference is. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the thing that we're doing uh, doing at the moment is uh, the generative design for, for heat sinks. Uh, at the moment, we're the only ones in the world being able to do that. Ah, oh, cool. And, and that's, uh, yeah, we get a confirmation almost on a daily basis that uh, companies and people approach us saying, yeah, we, we haven't seen anyone else um, doing something similar to, to what you're doing. And just the fact that we are active in, in uh, three different continents at the moment after uh, only existing for a few years is just a proof of that, that, that we're solving a problem that not only in Belgium or in Germany exists, but uh, it's it's a worldwide issue. You actually led me on to my kind of last slightly throwaway question because we're getting close to time. Um, I've only interviewed five companies for this season. So there's a kind of a different, we've, we've done a different uh, setup and it's only been five companies. And two of those companies, CFD companies, have been in Belgium. Is there something special going on over there that we need to? The rest of us need to know about. What, <laughs> I think we're just the smartest people in the world, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> uh, I thought it was going to be the beer or the chocolate. <laughs> that that might help as well. Uh, that might help as well. Uh, no, I. Uh, um, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of the podcast, and I, I saw them passing by as well, and Numica and uh, Airshaper, I think it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know, I know both of them as well. Um, I don't know what it is here with uh, with Belgium, but um, it, it's uh, it's quite striking to see how many companies are are involved in in the CFD world, and I have no no explanation for that. Um. <laughs> well, long may it continue. The more the more companies, the better, I think. Yeah. Uh, for sure, for sure, because it's a, a very big world and many many CFD issues that need to be solved. So. Yeah, plenty of plenty of problems to attack. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show today, um, Levan. Um, if people want to find out a bit more about what you guys do, I'm going to put some links in the show notes to uh, to some of the videos that kind of explain the way the the designs evolve and things like that. But if they want to find out a bit more about diabetics or get in touch with you, what's what's the best way to do that? Oh, uh, send an email, uh, give us a call, uh, and we will get back to you as, as quick as we can. Um, so you can easily send an email to info at diabetics.com. Awesome. Uh, well, as you've heard, these are good guys to talk to. So if you've heard something that piques your interest, then uh, get in touch with these guys. Um, thanks again for coming on the show, Levin. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. It was fun to do. <laughs> <laughs>